listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Uh, Happy Palm Sunday to all of you, and please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. That's a letter to the Hebrews in your New Testament, chapter 11. We're currently in a series right now called By Faith. This is a short three-week series that we've been in for the last two weeks. It's the third week of it, and in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at the role of faith in our relationship with God and what it means for us to walk by faith. And today we're going to continue in that and have one kind of big final thought in this idea. But, you know, the series we originally planned because of the unique season that we find ourselves in as a church, getting into our own building, which is really exciting. It's something that we've been saving for, planning for, preparing for for many years. And God opened up a great opportunity for us to move into this building that we're in right now. Of course, uh, None of you are here. I'm here, but uh, none of you are here. But we will hopefully be here very soon when this pandemic crisis is over. We look forward to when the, when we can gather here as a church. Um, but, you know, this is a great opportunity to be in this building. And yet, it's also a stretch for us. It takes a step of faith to move into this building because we're going from a little and to a lot and we want to see God do more through our church. We believe that he's called us to this and we're excited and expectant for all the great things that he's going to do in and through us in this new space, having a place that is our home and what he's going to do as a result of us following him and taking this step of faith. But of course, in the midst of us moving into this building, as you all well know, we we have this coronavirus pandemic that happened at the same time. And it's not just causing upheaval for our church, it's causing upheaval for so many of your lives. I know that so many of you right now are out of work. Maybe you don't know uh, when you'll be able to go back to work. Maybe your job has ended completely. Maybe you're in a situation where you're not sure how you're gonna make ends meet because you don't know how long this is going to go on. And so as we navigate this new situation, this topic of walking with God by faith in the face of challenges uh, and steps of faith, this is a topic that's more relevant to our lives than perhaps at any other time. And so at the same time, I'm also convinced that we as the people of God who have the word of God, we are better equipped, we are more equipped than anyone else in the world to face these kinds of situations. These are the things that God has made us for and prepared us for. This is our time to shine and shine his light and act by faith as the people of God in the world. But again, uh, more than ever before, this is a time when when faith and walking with God by faith in the midst of challenges is a very relevant topic. And so I'd like to conclude this three-week series by focusing our our attention on a very important question, which is, what is the goal and what is the purpose of walking with God by faith? And not only that, what is the reward? What is the reward? The title of today's message is The Reward of Faith or Faith's Reward. Let's read in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 6. It says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as stars of heaven and as many as, many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we study it, Lord, help us to understand the goal, the purpose, the reward of faith. And Lord, may we walk by faith in relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced something where you expected God to do something and he didn't do what you expected. Or maybe something happened to you that didn't align with your expectations about how a loving God would or would not act or what he would or would not allow to happen. It didn't align with your expectations. How did you respond in those times? How do you respond in those kinds of situations? How do you make sense of those kinds of things? Maybe you've even asked yourself the question in response to one of those times in your life. You ask yourself even the question, you know, what is the point? What is the point of having faith in God if bad things still happen in my life? What is the point of walking with God by faith if things aren't going to turn out the way that I want them to? What is the point? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, as we just read, it tells us this, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. But check out what he says next. Because whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. This verse is telling us that there is a purpose, there is a goal to walking with God by faith, and specifically it tells us there is a reward to faith. There is a reward that you will receive if you walk with God by faith. So the big question is, what is that reward? What is that reward? What is the point of walking with God by faith? What do we get as a reward? As a church right now, we have taken steps of faith. We're on a journey of faith right now together as a community of believers. And the question is, why? If we could have just comfortably stayed where we were, why should we take steps of faith? Why should we press forward? Why should we stretch and do things that are going to require us to pray more, to give more, to serve more? Why not just stay where we were, where it was fine? Why do this? What reward are we looking for in all of this? Now, on the one hand, we, we do this, right, for the benefit, not of ourselves, but we do this for the benefit of others. It's been said that church is one of the only organizations in the world that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members, and that's true. Part of the reason why we're doing this is to reach not just those of us who are here, but so that we can also love and serve those who are not here yet. You know, our vision is that 
This place would be full of people becoming disciples of Jesus, being trained, equipped, you know, children and youth being discipled in the ways of Jesus and taught and trained. So we do this on the one hand for the benefit of others, but what do we get out of it? Is there anything that we get out of it? Is there any reward for us stepping out and taking these steps of faith? What reward can we expect to get in return for taking the steps of faith that God is calling us to make? Is it comfort, success, prosperity? No, and it's actually not any of those, but I'll give you better news. It is something better than any of those things. It is something even better than comfort, better than success, better than prosperity. And here in these verses, we see in the lives of these people who walked with God by faith, what is the reward of following God and taking his hand and walking with him by faith. The title of today's message again is Faith's Reward. And there are two things that we see in this passage regarding the reward of faith and taking steps of faith. And those two things are these. These are kind of two headings that we're going to use uh, to go through this passage and some related ideas. Number one is this, beyond your wildest dreams. Beyond your wildest dreams. That's the first thing we'll talk about. Secondly, we'll talk about the ultimate reward. So beyond your wildest dreams and the ultimate reward. Let me ask you this. If you could have one wish, what would it be? What, what is that thing that on your birthday, after everybody sung the song, they placed the cake down in front of you, the candles are burning. What is that thing which when you close your eyes and you blow out those candles that you are wishing? Now don't say it out loud because of course we all know that that'll jinx it. So don't say it out loud. But what is that thing? I imagine if you found a lamp and of course a genie comes out of the lamp and says you can have one wish. What is your wish in that case? What would you wish for? Now, I think that if we look at some of these people in our text and some other people in the Bible, we can identify what their wish would have been. If you look at Abraham and Sarah mentioned here in our text, right, the father and the mother of our faith, we're told in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, the question, uh, if you would have asked them, what would your wish be? One wish, they would have said, easy. There's one thing that we want in the world. They were rich. They lived in a, a, the most technologically advanced society at their time. But there was one thing that they didn't have, and that was a child. If they could have had one wish, they would have asked for a child. Let me introduce you to somebody else. Her story's told in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. She's a woman who lives in Samaria, and Jesus encountered her at a well in the middle of the day. And if you would have asked that woman, what is the one thing that you wish for in life? What is the thing that when you close your eyes on your birthday and blow out the candles that you wish for deep down in your heart of hearts more than anything else? She would have said, I wish for a husband who loved me. I wish I had a husband who loved me. Let me tell you a little bit about her story. Jesus was walking from Jerusalem to Galilee, and to do that, there were two routes you could take. He chose to take the route through Samaria, and the route through Samaria took still about three days' time to walk from Jerusalem up to Galilee, which is where there were a lot of people, Jewish people who lived in Galilee, but they had to go to Jerusalem a lot for different feasts and festivals. So Jesus is making his way back up to where he lived lives on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it's a three-day walking journey. So halfway there, he stops and he takes a break next to a well. Now, as Jesus is standing at this well, this woman comes to the well all by herself to get some water. Now, that may not strike you as weird. You say, okay, fine, woman comes to the well to get water. What's next? No, 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 stop there. If you were an ancient person reading this story, you would have immediately said, 
Red flag. Wait a second. Something is not right with this story. Something's wrong with this picture. This text tells us a few details which help us to see that there really is something wrong with this picture. First of all, it tells us that this happened at the sixth hour of the day. Now, uh, that's a different way of telling time. The sixth hour of the day is noon. It is the time of day when the sun is the highest in the sky. So at noon, Jesus is at this well. Now, it also tells us this happened after Passover. Okay, in that part of the world, in Samaria, it's a desert region. So after Passover means early summer. So what this means is it's early summer in the desert at noon. Jesus stops at a well, and a woman comes out to the well all by herself. In the customs of that time, and even still to this day in places where they don't have piped-in water, uh, women go to the well in the morning and in the evening in the desert because, of course, it's a desert and it's super hot during the middle of the day. So why is this woman coming in the middle of the day by herself. Furthermore, going to the well was a communal activity. It's not something that you would do by yourself. Also, we know this well was on the edge of town. So for social reasons, right, the women would go together. It was also for practical reasons. They would help each other out to get the water out of the well. But there was also the safety and security reason of going out to the edge of town by yourself. So in every way, we can see this is not normal that this woman would come by herself without anybody else, at noon, in the desert, to a well, okay? So we know it's weird. There's, there's really only one reason why a woman would come out to a well at noon by herself, and that is this. This woman was a social outcast. She was not welcome to join the other women in the gathering of water. Perhaps they didn't like her. And so she comes out in the middle of the day to get water at this well because she knows that no one else will be there. At one point, Jesus starts prying a little bit and asking, hey, why are you here by yourself in the middle of the day? I know this is weird. You know this is weird. What's the story? And of course, Jesus knows and he figures it out and, and he says to her, uh, hey, so why don't you go get your husband? Of course, knowing that she doesn't have a husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, it's, you're correct in saying that you don't have a husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man you are living with now is not your husband. Now, here we see the reason why this woman was an outcast. Now, look, it'd be really easy for uh, us to look at her and just kind of immediately judge her. And you say, you know what? That's your problem. You earned your reputation by your style of living. And maybe the reason the other women don't like you is because you keep stealing their husbands or doing other things with their husbands. But think about this. Rather than judging this woman, why don't we try to see the pain that, this, that must have permeated this woman's life? Here's why. In ancient cultures, you couldn't just get divorced like you can in our culture today. In ancient cultures, only men could divorce women. Women could not divorce men, even if they were abusive or mean. Okay, so if, if only men can divorce women, and this woman has been divorced five times, what that means is that this woman has given herself to at least five men who promised to love her, who promised to be faithful to her, who promised to be devoted to her, and then they rejected her. They got to know her, and after they got to know her, they rejected her. You know, rejection is one of the most painful, shattering things that a person can experience. All of us, one of our greatest fears as human beings is to have people who really find out who we really are and then reject us. 
decide that we're not worthy of their time and attention or love. And just imagine that this woman has gone through that five times. Five men promised that they would love her and take care of her for the rest of her life. And five times after they got to know her, they said, never mind. And they rejected her. And now she's so desperate for the love of a man that she's even willing to live with a man who won't even do her the decency of marrying her. She's so desperate for the love of a man that she's willing to sacrifice her integrity. She's willing to sacrifice her reputation. She's willing to become an outcast. And it's tragic because the man that she's living with, what is he doing? He's essentially using her and she's letting him do it because the one thing she wants more than anything else in this world is to be loved. It is to be cherished. And she is convinced that there is this love out there that if she could just find it, It would heal. It would fill the void in her heart. It would heal what is broken within her. And so if she could have just one wish, she would ask for a husband who loved her. How about you? Again, let me bring this back home. If you could have one wish, what would you wish for? If in your wildest dreams, what would you wish that your life could be like? What would you wish that you could have or that you could attain? For some of you, it might be a job. It might be a position in your company. It might be that you wish that you were the owner of your own business and that your business reached a certain level of success. Maybe it would be a certain level of financial stability, no debt, vacation home, traveling the world. When you close your eyes on your birthday to blow out the candles, what do you wish for? For the people of Israel at the time of Jesus, the answer to that question was very easy. If you were a red-blooded Jewish person, there was one thing that you wanted more than anything else in your wildest dreams. You wanted the freedom of Israel. If you've ever watched these movies about countries who have fought, you know, freedom battles and uh, revolutionary wars, movies like Braveheart, right, about the Scottish freedom fighters or The Patriot about the American Revolutionary War, right, those movies are super inspiring. You have William Wallace who says these things that just make you want to go and like do something great, right? The Scottish freedom fighter, he tells the people, they can take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. The Patriot, he says this line, I love this, the Patriot of Scotland, starved and outnumbered, charged the fields of Bannockburn, and they fought like Scotsmen, and they won their freedom. Or maybe you think of the American Revolutionary, right? Like uh, Patrick Henry, he says, give me liberty or give me death. And if you think about those statements and the way they make you feel, and just try to imagine how the Jewish people must have felt when their great nation, with their unique history as the people of God, the preservers of the word of God, are now ruled by a pagan empire. The Jewish people, they had their own set of laws that they had received from God through Moses, and they had had them for over a thousand years at this point. They had governed themselves by the laws of God, and now... Their laws were not, they couldn't even follow their own laws and their own holy scriptures because they're being ruled by a pagan empire that said that their emperor himself was a god and they had to honor him. You see, and so the one shining light, the one hope that the Jewish people had is that their scriptures promised that one day God would send a savior, a liberator. They called him the Messiah. And there were all these prophecies about him in the scriptures that he would come and he would reestablish the throne of David. He would overthrow any oppressors in the world and he would reestablish this kingdom of justice and righteousness for all. 
And basically, the Jewish people expected the Messiah to be their William Wallace, the one who would lead their nation to overthrow their oppressors and lead them to freedom. Right? They, they fully expected this person would come and lead them into charge, into real physical battle to overthrow the tyranny of the Romans. And if they could have had just one wish, it would have been freedom from the Romans. And so when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, remember today is Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. You can understand why the people were so excited. Let me tell you a little bit about the story. Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times before, but this time his trip to Jerusalem was different. You see, for many years, rumors had been circulating about Jesus that he might be the Messiah. You see, uh, he ticked all of the boxes that were requirements for somebody, you know, to be the Messiah. He met all of the criteria. He was a descendant of David. He had performed miracles, including some of the greatest telltale signs of the Messiah, right? That he healed the blind, he healed the lame, and most importantly, he healed the lepers. But there was one reason why people said, you know, even though Jesus meets all of the criteria to be the Messiah, there's one reason they, they weren't all on board with thinking that he was the Messiah. And that reason was because Jesus was apolitical, right? He was not political at all. He was always talking about the kingdom of heaven, and he refused to speak out against the Roman occupation, even when people asked him to do so directly. And for the Jewish population. Again, remember, their expectation was William Wallace. Their expectation was George Washington, right? The one who will lead them in a war of independence. But because Jesus was always talking about spiritual things and he refused to get political, the people dismissed the idea that he could be the Messiah. But this time it was different because this time Jesus came to Jerusalem, he actually made a political statement. Let me, let me read to you the story of Palm Sunday from Mark's gospel chapter Chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, and the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. So they went out, found a colt, tied at a door out in the street. They untied it. Some were standing there and said, why are you doing this? And they said, Jesus had said to do it. And so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And what's going on here? Why does this story spend so much time telling about this donkey? And why does Jesus need a donkey? I mean, I've been to Jerusalem and the walk from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. It's a very short walk, five minutes maybe. And don't forget the fact, Jesus has made this walk many times. It isn't that this is a far walk. It's not that he's tired. There's something significant about this. Why does he need this donkey? Well, Matthew's gospel tells us why he needs this donkey. In Matthew 21, verses 4 through 5, in Matthew's account of this story, it says this, This took place to fulfill that which was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. This is a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that prophesied that when the Messiah came, this would be the sign by which people would recognize him. Rather than entering the city of Jerusalem on a steed, as many conquering rulers did or many warriors did, the Jewish Messiah and Savior would enter the city on a donkey. 
And so this was a political statement. Jesus is declaring himself to be the promised king, the one whom God has sent to liberate the people. And for many people in Jerusalem, this caused them to go from doubting the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah to wholeheartedly embracing the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. And look at what the people did. It tells us there in Mark 11, verses 8 through 10, that they spread palm branches on the road. Others spread leafy branches they had cut from field. They waved them and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. These people in mass were welcoming Jesus into their city as their Jewish William Wallace, as their Jewish George Washington, the one who will lead them in a war of independence against the Romans and reestablish the throne of David. By the way, the word Hosanna, it means save us or save us now. Here are these people welcoming Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior, as their King. It's a beautiful picture, right? Now we call it Palm Sunday because they put those palm branches down as like a red carpet for Jesus to enter the city. It's a beautiful story until you realize what happened next. You see, just a few days after this, many of these same people would be yelling a different word. Rather than yelling Hosanna, many of these same people would be the ones who shouted, crucify him crucify him. You might know the story that Jesus, uh, upon entering Jerusalem, he didn't do what the people had expected him to do. They expected him to go to a Roman fortress, which was just to the north of the Temple Mount, called the Antonia Fortress. If there was any symbol of Roman occupation in, in Jerusalem, it was the Antonia Fortress. It was a garrison of Roman troops there in Jerusalem. And what everybody expected is here comes Jesus on his donkey, and he is going to lead us through the gates of the city. He is going to lead us up to the gates of the Antonia Fortress, and we're going to tell them that we want freedom. But instead of doing that, it tells us there in Mark 11, verse 11, I believe it is, where Jesus walks in, and he goes, and rather than going to the Antonia Fortress, he goes to the temple. And then the next day, what does he do? He goes to the temple again. The people are thinking, when is he going to do it? When, when is he going to go and, and tell the Romans that we want our freedom? But Jesus keeps going to the temple. In fact, on Monday, he goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. He turns over the tables of the money changers, right? The people who are extorting people in order to make sacrifices. They're selling animals, kind of like they sell, you know, food at the airport where it's like ridiculously marked up, but you have no choice because you're already there. That's what these people are doing. Jesus cleansed it. He said, this is, you have made this a den of thieves. This is my father's house. It's to be a house of prayer. And the people started wondering, wait a second, I thought you were coming to cleanse Jerusalem of the Romans. What are you doing cleansing the temple of the hypocrites? I thought you came to cleanse us of oppression from outside forces. What are you doing coming in here and telling us that we need to repent of our sins? And so when he was arrested and they brought him before Pontius Pilate, it's interesting, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of that province there, he says, he examines the, the things they say about Jesus, and he says, I don't see anything wrong with him. And the people shout instead, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, look, every year we release one criminal just for your Passover, just to be nice to you. Well, this year I'll let you guys decide. I'll give you Jesus of Nazareth or 
Ted Bundy, right? Or Charles Manson, right? Is it Barabbas, a cold-blooded killer? Uh, and he shot, thought, surely I'll offer them like the worst person that I can think of. Here, take this guy. He can go free. Or I'll give you Jesus, who obviously didn't do anything wrong. Surely they won't choose the cold-blooded killer. And yet they do. They say, give us Barabbas. He's our favorite. We've always loved him. He's the best. We've always loved that guy. And they say, okay, fine. And they shout again, Jesus, crucify him. Again, here's what's incredible. Many of the same people who shouted Hosanna on Palm Sunday are the same people who shouted crucify him on Friday. And this begs the question, what could possibly cause a person to go from shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday to shouting crucify him on Good Friday? Well, we get a hint to what that is, again, where we see that Jesus entered the temple and he didn't do what the people expected him to do. See, and many times, uh, I don't know if that's something you've ever experienced in your life, where you've asked for something from God and things didn't turn out the way you wanted. Maybe you expected that things would go one way. Surely, if God is loving, he, he will do this. And then it didn't happen the way you expected it. Maybe you prayed. Maybe you even prayed, you felt, with faith. And yet things didn't work out the way you hoped. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to respond the way the people of Jerusalem responded. To throw up your hands and say, well then what is the point? What is the point of walking with God if it doesn't make my life turn out the way I want it? If it doesn't give me the things that I've wanted and prayed for and wished for? What's the point of following God if, if things in my life still aren't going to turn out the way that I want? I mean, God's the, he's the big guy upstairs, right? Can't he pull some strings? Can't he make things work out the way I want them to? In this area, what is the point of being a Christian and following Jesus and taking steps of faith if God still doesn't pull some strings in order to reward me and make some things turn out the way I want them to? Again, come with me back to Jerusalem, back to the crowds shouting Hosanna on Palm Sunday and those, many of those same people shouting crucify him on Good Friday. These people turned from Jesus. Why? Because he didn't do what they wanted him to do, what they expected him to do. And here's why that is so tragic. Here's why. Ready? Because in reality, what Jesus had come to do was something much better than the thing which they wanted. They wanted this thing. They turned against him because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. But yet Jesus had come to do something immensely, immeasurably better than what they had wanted. They thought the reward of their faith would be that God would give them their greatest wish. That he would liberate them from the Romans. And in reality, God wanted to give them something better. Something bigger. Rather than freedom from the oppression of the Romans, Jesus had come to set them free from the true oppression, the oppression of Satan, sin, and death. You see, friends, let me put it this way. What we have in God is not a genie. It's a father. We, in God, we have a father, not a genie. And that is immeasurably better it is immeasurably better. A genie doesn't love you. A genie doesn't care about you. A genie only grants your wishes like a mercenary because he has to out of obligation. They don't care if that thing is really in your best interest or not. But a father, a father loves you. He takes your requests into consideration and he knows what you really need. Even when you say you want something, your father knows what your real need is and he is dedicated to meet your actual need because he knows you best and loves you most. And it's worth asking the question, which one would you rather have? 
Would you rather have a genie who grants your wishes, or would you rather have a father who gives you what you really need? And here's the thing. God never promises to be your genie, but he does offer to be your father. And again, let me tell you, that is infinitely better infinitely. And here's why. Because as a loving father, God may not always give you what you want. He may not give you everything that you ask for, but he will give you exactly what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. He will give you everything that you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. You know, oftentimes the problem with our wildest dreams is that they're not wild enough. I think that is what God would want you to know. Your wildest dreams are too small. They are not wild enough. You know, all we want is freedom from the Romans, but God wants to give us true, lasting liberation that frees us from everything that oppresses. All we want is a husband who will love us, and yet God wants to give us his abiding love, his abiding faithfulness that will meet all your needs and heal what is really broken in you. C.S. Lewis put it this way. It's brilliant. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Our wildest dreams aren't wild enough. That's the point. God wants to do abundantly more than you could ever ask or even imagine. That's what he says in Ephesians chapter 3. I always love that because I can imagine some pretty crazy stuff. Probably you can too. Like riding on a dinosaur, right? Like with like, uh, like uh, being the richest person in the world. I can imagine going to exotic locations. I can imagine accomplishing all of my goals in life. And yet no matter what I imagine in my wildest dreams, they're not wild enough. No matter what it is that you wish for when you close your eyes and blow out the candles on your birthday, God wants to do something bigger, something better than that for you. And see, Jesus came not so that God would be your genie. Jesus came so that you could know God as your father. Jesus came to die for your sins in order to reconcile you to God so you could experience adoption and become a child of God. When you embrace what Jesus did for you on the cross, you become a child of God and he becomes your father. And the reward of faith, the reward of faith in the gospel, the reward of taking God at his word, the reward of of uh, trusting God enough to do what he says. It is not that God will make all of your dreams come true. It is something better than that. It is something better than that. He wants to do things for you that are beyond your wildest dreams and your greatest wishes. So let's talk about what that is. That's our second point. The ultimate reward. The ultimate reward. Come back with me, if you will, to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And let's take a look at what it says about what the reward of faith, this reward that is beyond our wildest dreams, beyond the greatest desires of our hearts. What is it? In verse 7 of chapter 11 of Hebrews, we read that Noah, having been warned by God about the events which were going to come, he constructed the ark for the saving of his household. But check out what it says next. It says that because of Noah's faith, because Noah took God at his word, he trusted God enough to do what God said. What did Noah receive as a reward? It says he became an heir 
of the righteousness that comes by faith. He became an heir. That was his reward. He became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So the reward of Noah's faith wasn't merely that his family was saved from the flood. His primary reward was that he was justified before God. He was made right with God. Even if Noah had not survived the flood, this reward for his faith would have remained and it would have been worth it. This reward of receiving God's righteousness uh, given to him as a gift, being made right with God, a relationship with God on the basis of faith that God took this unrighteous man and made him righteous, imputed righteousness. That was a gift that lasted for eternity. In other words, God didn't only save Noah's life, God saved Noah's soul. That was the reward for his faith. And then it says in verse 8, we read about Abraham and Sarah and the reward of their faith. It says that rather than receiving a homeland, God gave Abraham something even better. He gave him the heavenly country, it says. And the reality is, the text tells us, that in all of Abraham's wanderings, in all of his seekings, after an inheritance, after a homeland, what Abraham was really seeking, underneath all of his endeavors, what he was really seeking, and truly, friends, what all of us are really seeking underneath all of our endeavors, it was a hunger, it was a desire, it was a yearning for heaven. And within that, it was a yearning for God. It says in verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In all of Abraham's searching, what was he searching for? He was searching for heaven. It tells us in verse 13 that all of these people, they died in faith, never having received here on earth that which they longed for. In other words, the reward of Abraham's faith, the reward of Sarah's faith is the same as the reward that Noah also received. It wasn't that they got what they desired here on earth. It wasn't that all of their dreams here on earth were met. It was that they received something better, a heavenly country, a city whose designer and maker was God. See, Abraham and Sarah, they had originally thought that the reward for their faith was going to be that God would give them a child. And yet if you read their story, it's interesting that, that many years pass by before they actually have a child. They start following God and they get frustrated. We read that several occasions. They get frustrated because they're like, okay, when are we going to get the reward for our faith? We did what God asked us to do. We trusted him enough to walk by faith. When are we going to get our reward? And then I love this verse. It's one of the great ones. This is one for you to circle, highlight, Underline Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. During one of these times when Abraham's frustrated, he's wondering, when is God's promise going to be revealed? When am I going to get the reward for following God and obeying God by faith? Look at what happens. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. I am your very great, your exceedingly great reward. God is explaining to Abraham that the reward of his faith, the reward of obedience is something better and bigger than a son. The reward of walking with God by faith and obeying him by faith is God himself. Do you see that? 
As Abraham, he's, he's getting the reward of getting to walk with God, of getting to know God, is the reward of being with God himself in a relationship through which God is declaring him righteous and it is a relationship that will go on forever. And it says there in Genesis 15 verse 6 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you see the reward of Abraham's faith is the same as the reward of Noah's faith. It's that God's righteousness made these unrighteous people righteous. It made it possible for these sinful people to be cleansed, to be healed, to be forgiven, and to enter into a relationship with a righteous God, a relationship that would result in pleasures and joy forevermore. Friends, do you know that the same is true for us? The reward of our faith is that by faith we will receive, we can receive, we do receive a gift that is beyond our wildest dreams. It is by faith that we receive the righteousness of God given to us in Jesus. Because he, Jesus, who knew no sin, he became sin for us. That's what we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He took our unrighteousness upon himself on the cross. He was treated as we deserved so that we could be treated as only he deserves because God made us the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. Because he atoned for our sins, now we can be treated as the children of God. And we know that when this life is over, there is a home in the heavens prepared for us. A treasure that moth and rust cannot destroy, that thieves cannot break in and steal. It's a treasure that we get to enjoy even now. And every longing of our hearts, guys, the longing of the woman at the well for true love and faithfulness that could heal her and fulfill her. The longing of the Jews for freedom from oppression. And every longing of your heart as well. They all find their ultimate fulfillment in relationship with God. He is the ultimate reward of our faith. St. Augustine famously put it this way, Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked one of the most pointed, poignant, profound questions that's ever been asked. He said this, What does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul. What does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? Let me ask you this. What does it benefit a person if they, if they gain a loving husband and yet lose their soul? What does it benefit a person if they get freedom from the Romans and yet lose their soul? What does it benefit a person if they get the child they've always wanted and yet lose their own soul? And yet, God promises us so much more. Something bigger, something better than even our wildest dreams. What is the point of walking by faith? What will be your reward if you trust God in the midst of the difficulty that you're facing right now? What will be our reward as a church if we step out and take a step of faith and see what God might do? What will be your reward if you trust God enough to do what he says? You know what it will be? It will be more of God. It will be a deeper connection with God, a deeper relationship with him. The reward of walking with God by faith is something much better than anything we could ever get from God. It is God himself. And we can ask ourselves, you know, what would it benefit us if we get everything we've ever wanted? What would it benefit you if you got everything you ever dreamed of and yet lose your soul? What will it benefit you if you survive the coronavirus pandemic and yet lose your soul? The fulfillment of your deepest desires and longings. 
The true reward of walking by faith is friendship with God and salvation of your soul and eternal life with pleasures forevermore. And I want to encourage you today. Give all of yourself to him who gave himself for you. And let us be those who take God at his word and trust him enough to do what he says. And those who take God's hand and walk with him by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are a God who is trustworthy and faithful. You are a God whom we can take at his word. You are a God who has always shown yourself to be true and faithful. And Lord, we desire not only what we can get from you. Lord, let that not even be the primary desire. Lord, we desire you because we realize that in you is everything that we seek in all of the other endeavors we have in our lives. So Lord, Let us seek you. Let us take your hand by faith. Let us take those steps of faith, both as individuals and as a church. Let us trust you enough to do what you say. And Lord, we ask that in reward, Lord, we would get more of you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.